Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. All right, welcome to Bet the Edge. I'm Jay Croucher here with Drew Dinsick. As always, big weekend coming up, Drew. Big night, late night of tennis. We'll get into that with Racket Magazine's Caitlin Thompson. First, we're going to talk about the NFL. We're going to give our last four thoughts on Championship Sunday. Um, but before we do that, now best bets. Let's bring in Brad Spielberger uh, from PFF. PFF underscore Brad. Brad. It's good to see you. Uh, looking forward to you defending Brock Purdy against uh, the preeminent Brock Purdy. Let's start off with that game, 49ers. Eagles, Eagles, two-and-a-half point favorites. Pretty much stayed all week. Two Eagles, two-and-a-half. The, two the minus is slightly back to minus 115, that type of range. The total is 46-and-a-half. From a betting perspective, Brad, what's most interesting to you about Eagles 49ers? Yeah, so there are a ton of props you can get into, but I think if you want to just start with the game itself, um, I like the over a lot in this game. And you mentioned, my, you know, my guy, apparently Brock Purdy. Um, yeah, I don't think it's even so much about Purdy, um, as I think it's a, it's a solid matchup for their offense where we know they attack the middle of the field, and that is the susceptible point of this Eagles defense. And then also, as great as James Bradbury and Darius Slay are, they're guys that match up better against the true outside, big-bodied X receivers. I think if you throw underneath them and let Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk and Christian McCaffrey with a lot of his you know, lining up in the slot or even lining up out wide and let them get yards after the catch, make guys miss, it's actually not a great matchup as good as those outside corners are. And then on the flip side, um, the Eagles are going to throw outside the numbers. Our guy, Diamador Lenoir, and also um, even, <laughs> even Charvarius Ward has been susceptible all year and in particular in the playoffs. DK Metcalf roasted him. We saw CeeDee Lamb beat him a couple times. Yeah. Um, and even Michael Gallup, Dak missed the throw by about 10 feet, but but also was wide open uh, you know, down the sideline. So I think A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith will get one of those big explosive receptions. Okay. Well, that's music. That part's music to my ears. I definitely like the Eagles offense against the Niners defense for what it's worth, because really the Niners defense only scares you if they are getting immense pressure. Uh, and now they get their toughest test of the season going up against the A1 offensive line in the NFL. So uh, should have time for Jalen Hurts here, assuming that he's not a little bit deer in the headlights like we have seen from him in some high, high leverage games, mostly last year, not at all this year, really. But, uh, you know, assuming he is cool, calm and collected in the pocket, I do like his ability to try to dice this team up down the field. Now, I guess the quick key question I have for you is let's say that there is general success early for one of these two teams. 
Uh, either Shanahan comes in with the absolute world-beating scheme, gets his team off to a great start, or the Eagles find success through the air and put a little bit of pressure on the Niners. Are you worried at all about an over uh, if you are looking at one of these teams taking like a two-score lead into halftime and potentially squatting on the ball in the second half? Yeah, no, so I think that is a good point, and that I would much rather prefer a, a strong Niners start, get Kyle Shanahan on those scripted plays, not only because, you know, I don't want the Eagles trying to run against this ferocious Niners defense and probably not doing very much in that capacity. But also, I don't really want Brock Purdy playing from behind, having to throw a ton. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, and you can obviously run on this Eagles defense, sixth and EPA per rush allowed, um, pick up some chunk yardage. So, yeah, from a game script standpoint, if the Niners go down a, a couple scores early, that probably maybe I take some, some live unders or, or try to hedge out a little bit. Um, but that would be the, the less optimal game script. Maybe even, you know, in addition to live unders, just the team with the lead potentially being able to put it away makes sense either with either team. Or do you think uh, either of these teams is more well equipped to come back? I think the Eagles are for, for, okay. for a lot of reasons here, not only Jalen Hurts and Brock Purdy, but also, you know, kind of like I mentioned, the mismatches for the Eagles, I think, leads to explosive plays. I think winning down the sideline, um, you know, for example, I, you know, I think that the receiving yardage props have maybe been boosted a little bit for Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown, but I like the longest reception. I think A.J. Brown was 22 and a half. I like that bet a lot um, because I think, yeah, they're down also. Nick Sirianni, I mean, people forget when he first came to Philadelphia – they were throwing the ball every single snap. And Hurts, they kind of needed to bring in Shane Steichen, run the ball more, mix in some different concepts. But he wants to throw. He is not going to get two yards of carry like the Cowboys did and just keep running into a brick wall. He's going to throw. I like it. Brad, a couple things. One, love the earlier Parisian pronunciation <laughs> of Lenoir, our man. Absolutely roll with that for all of eternity. Secondly, I want to ask about um, well, a couple of things. One, I do think that it's interesting that uh, Brock Purdy's been a favorite in every single game that he's played to date. Uh, I think that the the smallest line that he's favored by was, I think, the the game at Seattle, that Thursday night game, might have gotten down to three. Then he's a three-and-a-half-point favorite last week against Dallas. Uh, and so I think that the maybe the, the popular consensus about this game is that, well, this is Purdy's first real test on the road against an elite defense and against one of the best pass rushers um, in football. How much do you think that the Eagles pass rush, I guess, shapes this game? It's funny because we actually have the Niners is the second easiest strength of schedule in the NFL and the Eagles with the easiest. So it's kind of a, <laughs> a, a big matchup for both teams um, against a better defense than they probably faced. But I, I think the Dallas Cowboys defense is probably, in my opinion, better than the Philadelphia Eagles. They're very different. We're going to see way more soft coverage, way more zone from Philadelphia, which you know maybe keeps the guys in front of them, like I said. But I also think Debo Samuel, I don't care what coverage you're in, if he gets the ball in open space, can probably make you miss. Um, the pass rush is a problem. I think Hassan Reddick against Mike McGlinchey in particular is a really bad matchup because he's a speed rusher with great dip, great bend. And, I mean, we saw Michael Parsons throw him into the ethos last week, but I even think a – a finesse rusher is an even worse matchup than, than a power guy like Michael Parsons. Yeah. Uh, from a player prop perspective, Brad, anything that jumps out to you uh, considering the matchups? I like uh, Jalen Hurts under 48 and a half r rushing yards uh, quite a bit. I, I think it's just a game where 
We're not going to see a ton of running from him. The Niners are, are are solid against the run in all capacities, including quarterback rushing. I know there's a quote going around. I mean, look, they outside of Marcus Mariota and Justin Fields, no quarterback really did anything against them on design rushes or scrambles. Um, so, so I don't think he's going to run a lot. And, and I also don't think if we do get a game script where they go up by a little bit, I think they're going to cycle through Kenneth Gainwell, Boston Scott, and Miles Sanders. I don't think this is a Jalen Hurts rushing type of game. Well, that's an interesting kind of contrarian take to a lot of people who have been pointing to you know Niners not necessarily handling running quarterbacks well, but I tend to agree with you. Also, uh, Len, uh, Lenore made elect to change his pronunciation to Lenoir after A.J. Brown abuses him this weekend. That 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 number is getting absolutely uh, hammered across the uh, space. Uh, personally, I think this is a, a DJ, I mean, I assume yeah, a Debo Samuel type of game. Um, you know, it seems like they have kind of kept him in their back pocket for this type of a matchup and uh, seeing him get more involved as a, a rushing threat would be especially where I would look for uh, you know for interest guy had what 10 10 and 7 carries in last year's playoff run and they basically kind of entirely kept that out of the playbook at least to this point uh, as they have been heavy favorites and been at home and now here they are on the road in a tougher matchup I would expect to see some Debo Samuel involved on the ground there so uh, all fun looks fun ways to attack uh, and of course I'm going to play some Brock Purdy over two uh, over one and a half interceptions for like plus 400 because he is due Jay what about you <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. Um, giving you over your hatred of the man um, as a human being. Uh, look, I think the my two favorite ones here. One, well, they're both the same player. Miles Sanders under 10 and a half receiving yards. He's gotten one target in three weeks. He's gone under this number five straight games. He hasn't topped one target in any of those games. The Niners, particularly with their linebackers, one of the best teams uh, at defending running backs in the passing game. And then secondly... On the positive side of Miles Sanders, Miles Sanders get 100-plus rushing yards as 10 to 1. Uh, and look, I know that the Niners have the best rush defense in the league. At the same time, they've been favored in every game for a long time. And I just think that Sanders, just with the upside, that if it does get out of hand, if Purdy is throwing picks, then I think that the Eagles, who love to run the ball in the second half with a lead, we've seen games like... You know, I think back to the Minnesota game earlier in the season where they basically just, um, they just, you know, they just stopped. <laughs> they just stopped throwing the ball in the second half. And they just decided that, you know, we're just going to run the ball. And uh, the 49ers obviously don't play an offensive line as good as the Eagles every week. So, look, I wouldn't be confident in backing just the straight over-under for Miles Sanders, but I do think that there perhaps is some variance um, just with game script where he could see uh, a lot of volume in the second half. Let's go to Bengals Chiefs. This is a game with a ton of variance, um, particularly in the line as it's moved um, from open where it was Chiefs minus two and a half and then it was Bengals minus two and now it's Chiefs minus one and a half. We've got videos of Patrick Mahomes walking downstairs at press conferences, moving playoff lines by three points. Uh, the total here is seven and a half. Brad, what's your read on this game? Yeah, so, you know, there is a ton of variance here. We're not doctors, or at least I know I, I'm not a doctor on the call here, so I'm not going to dive into, you know, how healthy Mahomes is, but I don't think he's going to be 100% healthy. Um, and, and I think teasing the Bengals with the 49ers, you get Niners up to 8.5, and, and now the Bengals, I'm seeing it plus 1.5 at several books. You get them over a touchdown. Um, look, I, I mean, I just think this is a great matchup for Cincinnati, not because of prior games, um, you know, and the results in those games, but – 
Jamar Chase is just a guy that, and the prop I like as well, over six and a half receptions, but I just don't, there's no answer for him on this Kansas City Chiefs team. And, and I think you're also seeing him used more and more on quick outs, screen passes, quick slants, you know, running uh, pre-snap motion. They're getting him the ball on, on bubble screens and all sorts of different things. Um, and I just don't think there's an answer for him. And so the offensive line injuries are concerning. Um, they overcame that, but the Chiefs pass rush is better than the Bills, at least right now at full health. Um, but I just think regardless, this is going to be a one-score game either way. So getting teased, you know, a long teaser through three through seven, I think is a, is a very attractive play here. What do you got, Troy? Yeah. yeah. I have kind of talked myself into a pretty significant Chiefs position here. <laughs> and I feel like I'm doing a little bit of like putting the blinders on to all of the signal that the Bengals offense is going to be live in this game. And this is like a score and answer kind of deal. And uh, it will matter if Pat Mahomes is mobile or not, but uh, it's kind of taking a big old step back. Like the way that the chiefs offensive line is pass protecting. I kind of don't think that the mobility matters all that much. He's still going to have fluidity in the pocket. He's not going to get popped very much. I don't think uh, particularly because sort of Bengals plan a on defense always seems to be, let's try to get pressure with three, maybe four drop seven, maybe eight. Uh, and in that situation, uh, you know, Mahomes operating in a clean pocket should be able to, to pick off the small stuff. Um, I am hopeful that the chiefs come out with a game plan that try to use, you try to utilize their physicality on the offensive line, take DJ reader, uh, you know, off the nose and, you know, really kind of pick apart some of the gap problems that the Bengals have when it comes to, uh, you know, stopping the run on the second level, get Pacheco going, just really just lean into the run game early here, force, uh, Lou Anaruma out of his comfort zone, put more guys in the box and then let Pat Mahomes cook some cook in the second half. Like that's the game state that I want to see as someone who is back the chiefs pretty heavily here. Um, and you know, in the back of my head, I'm worried if we pop up, you know, pop into halftime and evaluate the first half. And it's like, Oh my God, the chiefs defense was a fraud. How did we not see this coming? Um, because like you said, like chase could absolutely cook these guys. Um, I'm hopeful though, that, uh, you know, that the Bengals offensive line that we saw last week, that was just dominating, you know, against the bills that, that was entirely uh, based on the fact that the weather was in their favor and they were playing with the lead. And you can, you know, you, you, you just have a different game state in that situation. And yeah, like, you know, like you mentioned, the Bills pass rush did not win their 1v1s, whereas I would expect Chris Jones to be extremely disruptive in this game. And, you know, if I got to go to war banking on Chris Jones getting it done, if I got to go to war banking on Mahomes uh, being able to pass his way uh, to a win here under three, then I'm going to do that every single time. So uh, hopeful that the Chiefs can get a little bit of, um, uh, you know, exercise some demons here uh, against the Bengals team that's had their number of late. But, uh, you know, I, I just I look at this game largely through the lens of how does Casey not win? And maybe even more than that, how are they not favored by more? Like, this is a really, really, really tough number to come to some consensus, you know, come to some understanding on because beginning of December, this was a two and a half point spread in Cincinnati and home field advantage matters a ton, even more so in the playoffs in the regular season. So why this isn't on the other side of three is an absolute head scratcher to me, even with Mahomes at whatever, 60, 70 percent. Right. So um, do you have a sense that the market has just consistently upgraded the Bengals to this point, Brad, to where they are now kind Kind of accurately rated at the big differences here or do you think we are catching a little bit of uh, the one time in our lives we may get contrarian value on Mahomes and the Chiefs at home in the playoffs 
I actually do. So so it's funny you mentioned the, the past spread with the Bengals and Chiefs. I think it's also crazy just looking at last week. They get out to a six-point underdog against Buffalo, and now they're you know they were favored at times this week. And yes, of course, Mahomes' injury is part of that. But I mean, that is a massive swing. And yeah, the Bills probably would have been a short favorite in Kansas City, I think, if they win that game um, as well. But I do. And I also it kind of your angle, which I which I totally understand, reminds me of a, one of the dumbest bets I've ever made was when the Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> made the Super Bowl against the Buccaneers a couple years sure, ago, and sure. and they'd overcome their offensive line injuries. And I told myself, okay, it doesn't matter. They're just they're going to get over the offensive line. It doesn't matter. And then they played the Bucks pass rush, and Mahomes was running for his life. I think we also could be maybe in the same way we overreacted to the Bengals injuries for the Bills game. Maybe now we're overreacting to one good performance from their offensive line in this game. Yeah, a hundred percent. And look, I think that this is a game where it's impossible to have extreme confidence in the outcome unless you're not just a doctor, but a doctor who works for the Kansas City Chiefs. It's <laughs> uh, getting first, uh, first-hand knowledge of exactly how Mahomes is feeling, but all the reports yeah. have been relatively positive that he's probably trending better than expected. I think what yeah. we can have confidence on is that you know we need to be able to price in uncertainty, and I think the market is pricing a level of certainty around how bad Mahomes is going to look, which is just unrealistic and the line is you know you mentioned it brad bills close minus six at home to the bengals bills probably rated slightly better like a half point better than the chiefs on neutral that type of range one point if you're really bullish i still think it's just too big of an adjustment obviously you have to upgrade cincy after that game but between the cincy upgrade and mahomes not being 100 percent, i still don't think that gets you from you know minus five five and a half down to what we're at now of minus one and a half i think that this line should be closer to three uh from the player prop perspective brad anything that leaps out to you in this game yeah so the first one i mentioned jamar chase over six and a half receptions i absolutely love that play um you know just because like i said it's, it's not only that you know trent mcduffie good young rookie and whoever else they have are just not a good matchup but also they've made a clear effort to get the ball into his hands early in football games on quick outs and stuff like that. My other favorite, though, going with Drew's narrative, because I think Kelsey now at 7.5 is a little bit juiced. I don't really trust any other Chiefs pass catcher, even Jared McKinnon, all those guys are interesting. I love Mahomes over 24.5 completions, because I think Mm -hmm. if they are going to, if he does have some limitations, they're going to have a lot of those quick outs, a lot of the leak to Kelsey, and and Kadarius Toney getting involved, a lot of stuff over the middle, all that thing. So I think that's the way to play that is, you just see him complete a lot of short passes um, to get him in rhythm. Yeah, I I think that the player prop market is kind of interestingly cross-correlated with a lot of the side here. So if you take a position on the Bengals, you can kind of get frisky on like some overs for Mahomes. And there is like a middle there where the Chiefs are in comeback mode. Mahomes is throwing, throwing, throwing. And, you know, the Bengals still win, right? Like there is, there is a world where you hit both of those. And then the other way around, like if you feel like Chiefs are the side here, I think you swing away on Mahomes' unders because, number one, you capture the variance of him getting re-injured and not even really completing the game. Uh, and then, number two, um, the chance that, the you know, that they come in with sort of a mindset of we're going to run the ball, we're going to, you know, we're going to, try to kind of shorten the game here and at least take maybe the first half uh, and really not ask Mahomes to do very much. I think if the Chiefs end up kind of succeeding in this one, if they cover the number, that's part of the reason why. So uh, a lot of fun kind of ways to try to capture a middle, so to speak, uh, between back in the side and and hitting the player prop mark on this one. So that'll be fun. But, um, you know, I think the, the points, though, that I have just keep coming back to is like, 
And and what's I'm what I'm really struggling with overall in this game. And Jay is giving me some confidence, thankfully. And you'll get to it at the end of the show. But uh, there is never a free. There's never free money championship weekend. Never. Like this is there is never a time where the market is like giving you something wildly inefficient, and yet you cannot help but sit up and look at this and feel like uh, there's something missing in the overall picture here. So uh, I've been lighter than I would otherwise if you just threw this market in the middle of the NFL season and said, you know, there's this, there's some uncertainty, but uh, you know this price is fundamentally wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's a little bit tricky, you know, my, my instincts are just like, Hey, pump the brakes. Like there's a lot of information out there. Everybody is who's shaping the market in the middle of the week with these enormous limits is not an idiot. Uh, and so, you know, for those reasons, I've kind of treaded a little bit lighter on this game than I would have otherwise. Does any of that ring true, Jay? Do you have anything in the back of your head that is telling you that, uh, you know, this time of year, the, the sort of the way these markets work that ultimately that there's no sharp bet to be made no and look i think when i started working in this industry i think you start off by thinking that well liquid markets are just unbeatable but what i always <laughs> come back to is that um when Cl- warriors raptors the finals in 2019 when clay okay. thompson got ruled out of game three with an hour before tip just every smart nba person in the world said that the raptors should have been favored in that game and the market held firm on the warriors being favorite and it was just wrong just the wrong, completely wrong line. That was an NBA finals game. Liquid markets can be wrong, particularly when there is injury uncertainty that's just very difficult to price in. So I think that we're seeing that here. I just, yeah, I think the line is wrong. Brad, thank you for joining. Can you tell us where to, uh, where to follow you and uh, what you're working on? Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can follow me on Twitter at PFF underscore Brad and our top 100 free agents next week coming out with projections for every single contract for those guys. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Excellent. Thank you, Brad. All right. Before we get into our best bets on NFL uh, Conference Championship Sunday, a reminder to download the Roto World app to receive breaking player news all season long. Stay ahead of the competition by favoriting players on your roster, get the latest injury updates, player news, and much more delivered right to your phone. It's available in the App Store today. All right, best bets on Sunday. The NFL drew. Well, I think I suppose uh, because I. Text Adam <laughs> I'm going to go with the Eagles. I laid the points with the Eagles. Eagles fly, Eagles fly. Just too many game states where I favor the Eagles finding a way to win this one. And as was very, very well concisely said on this pod about 15 minutes ago, Brock Purdy and the San Francisco 49ers on the road against a real defense in a hostile environment, like for whatever it's worth, this is going to be the toughest test that they face all season. So I am banking on home field advantage being for real this week in conference championship weekend uh, and the Eagles getting it done, laying the two. Uh, My fair is three, not a huge edge. That said, I think uh, Eagles winning by a field goal or more is in the cards for us. Okay, I like it. Well, my best bet, um, as you may have guessed, is the Chiefs' money line, minus 120 on points bet, all in Chiefs. Still think that this line has not adjusted enough. I think look, I think the unsubstantiated conventional wisdom about Mahomes is that he's probably going to look pretty solid and fine in the pocket and not as good pocket naturally. And I think that he will be healthy enough to make the adjustment from Bills minus six to KC minus one and a half, uh, an over-adjustment. Uh, I think that's too much. I think if Mahomes was healthy 100%, this line would be Chiefs minus four, Chiefs minus three and a half. And I think that he's going to look good enough to bridge the gap where minus one and a half is not enough. Uh, respect for the Chiefs at home narrowhead. I think that Cincinnati's offensive line 
it was um, helped by the conditions against Buffalo. I think they're going to look worse um, in conditions that are kinder for pass rushes, even though uh, it's still not exactly what you would want as a Chiefs backer. But uh, I think that minus 120 uh, is a bet on the Kansas City Chiefs, and that's my best bet of the weekend. All right, done with the NFL. Now we get to the real stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. First, just a reminder that if you don't have the NBC Sports Predictor app, go download it now. The contests are free and easy to play, and you have a shot to win thousands this weekend by predicting what will happen on the PGA Tour as well as in college basketball. All right, let's welcome in Racket Magazine's Caitlin Thompson to talk about the big event, the Australian Open, uh, back where I grew up, Caitlin, in Melbourne. Uh, it's sad being in Stamford, Connecticut, wonderful Stamford, <laughs> Connecticut, uh, for this edition of the tournament. But um, let's start off with the appetizer, which I think is, is the less interesting match, so we'll get it out of the way. Novak Djokovic against Stefanos Tsitsipas. Djokovic, a heavy favourite, minus 500. Tsitsipas, plus 350 on points bet. Uh, Caitlin, does, does Steph have any chance in this? No. all right let's talk about the women's job uh no that's good i will say you know steph has beaten novak djokovic i believe two times really tennis comes down to head-to-heads it's head-to-heads and it's surface so what you look for is what kind of court is it is it playing fast is it playing slow in australia your home city of melbourne we know that the courts are fast and because of the weather especially this fortnight, unlike what we're getting in Connecticut and New York where I am, where it's gray and cold, it is hot and sunny and fast. And that really, really favors uh, big hitters. In the case of Steph, he can hang in there and hit with Novak. He just can't outgrind him. And really, I don't give him much of a chance on any surface against Novak, especially over five sets. He's never come close, although people would say those two sets that he was up against Novak Djokovic in the final of the French Open a few years ago was kind of the closest he came to closing it. But anybody who watches Novak Djokovic compete it's almost like he likes being down two sets that's when he really turns it on he gets bored otherwise because it's too easy to win in three straight sets so it would take some sort of miracle the fact that these guys played I believe four or five times four times last year alone and Novak Djokovic won all of them does not give me a ton of hope it happened on indoor (laughs) hard court it happened on outdoor hard court it happened on clay so yeah really 
I mean, I know where my heart is. And I think speaking on behalf of the massive Greek community in Melbourne, I know where their hearts are. Mm -hmm. I would love to see him do it. Novak Djokovic has looked supernatural this tournament. And I think Steph, who, if you look behind me, I'm rewatching some of the Steph Kachanov match. He's looked great. And it's the best he's played in a long, long time. It would take a Herculean effort. It might be a fun bet, but I don't think it's a very smart bet to put your money on Steph. Yeah, I think that's a very fair breakdown. Sissipas uh, was 2-1 and one to start his career against Djokovic and then yeah. has lost the last nine <laughs> in head-to-head, uh, which is not a uh, not a good trend. Uh, a lot among those nine, I, in fact, actually, across his career, he's lost every final uh, that they have gone head-to-head, starting with Madrid and most notably the Roland Garros final, uh, which uh, was... And a lot of people will probably point to that and be like, use that as some sort of reason that Steph has a chance. Cause like, man, it's up to nothing in that fourth set. Like he was giving him the business. Like if he just kind of raises his level in that fourth set, he's the, he's all of a sudden a grand slam champion. And we look at him differently. Djokovic was coming off of one of the most unbelievable, like kind of defeats of Rafa Nadal in form that I've ever seen. He was, uh, you know, that was a match where he was kind of, he, he was going to have to, pick himself up uh, to get the uh, win. And he did uh, in that five setter. So, you know, I, that was uh, impressive as any of the wins Djokovic has had. Uh, and yeah. I don't, I don't think that you're even in the same universe this time. Djokovic has barely had to sweat in this match. Is there any, uh, is there anything you're seeing with the way Djokovic is playing that gives you pause about the potential for Sissipas to be able to um, take advantage of the hamstring injury. Can he get him moving closer to the net, kind of get him moving laterally in a way that he is uh, uncomfortable or re-aggravates that and that opens the door for him? Or do you think the hamstring was overblown from Jump Street? Yeah, is there a hamstring injury? Yeah, right. <laughs> we <laughs> like, all wonder. <laughs> like I, like Novak famously, like the the more things that are, uh, it, it's like Sisyphusian the way that he likes to play. The more things that are stacked against him, whether it's the crowd, whether it's the umpire, whether it's, uh, you know, fervent nationalism, despite the fact that the Serbs are the most nationalist in terms of their support of him specifically, uh, whatever it is, phantom, you know, enemies in the crowd, it, he, he needs it all to triumph, to make the triumph that much sweeter. Um, and it sounds like I don't like the guy. It's kind of tough, too, to be honest. His tennis is unimpeachable, however. He plays a really safe game. He's really high margin. And he just doesn't miss. He grinds. The way to beat Novak Djokovic is to hit through him and to do it quickly. When he's lost in finals, especially of Grand Slams, he's done it when people take the initiative and do not let his their foot off of his neck. I'm thinking of Stan Vavrinka specifically, who can hit mm-hmm. through him. Anybody who's able to do that... I picked maybe Taylor Fritz or maybe Holger Runa, people who just hit massive, massive shots and can end points because this guy wants to grind. He wants to bring you down to the trenches and have massively long rallies that he liquid liquefies your lungs afterwards and he's fresh as a daisy and he can do it all day. That's really where he likes to live. So if you can get out of that scenario by just bringing the fight to him and absolutely crushing the ball and, and taking the initiative, you have a chance. However, there's nobody left in the draw who does that, and Stefano Sissipas is not his game. If, however, he comes up with some massive, massive, big sort of uh, initiative play, which after seeing the addition of uh, Philippoussis in his box, the heavy serving, another Australian of Greek descent, I'm looking at you, uh, that has been encouraging because he's playing a more aggressive style. When Stefano Sissipas has had a couple of dips in, in the last like year or two, it's because he's forgotten who he is, which is an initiative taker. So listen, there's a strategy to beat Djokovic. I just don't know that anybody could do it. And I don't know that Stefano Sissipas... Uh, even on his best day, can do that. That said, I'd like to see him try because I think that's going to be quick points coming to the net, trying to hit through the ball, 
uh, especially in a fast court, is is really the only chance he gets. And believe me, I'll be rooting for him. Okay. Well, I will say that Sissipas Forwardsworth has always found some of his best tennis in Australia. I don't get it. Uh, it's weird that your two best surface, your two best slams as performance wise would be Australia and Roland Garros. It doesn't kind of compute, but that's what Sissipas does. Um, so, you know, he's, he, he is bringing a little bit of confidence, presumably with his history here. And uh, I think Djokovic, this is a big step up for him. He has not really been tested. He has not really faced anyone that has legit chops in this entire tournament. So there, there may be a little bit of a, let's, okay, give me your best shot early. Let's see what your strategy is, and then I'll absorb it and adapt and, and come back at you. For those reasons, I think, uh, you know, Djokovic 3-1 is a fair play here. Uh, I caught that at a price of, like, plus 250. I think I would bet that down to plus 2-1. to one. Um, And, uh, you know, I think, realistically, uh, Sispas winning the first set money line is probably a fun play. And then at that point, uh, Djokovic taking care of business 3-1 is uh, what I would expect. Uh, Jay, are you going to get involved in this betting market at all, or are you going to sleep sleep like a baby on, sun, on uh, Saturday? And I waiting for uh, uh, NFL to kick off Sunday morning. Yeah, I think I'm going to sleep. I think uh, <laughs> Greek community in Melbourne, in New York, I think all planet Earth will be supporting Steph, but I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. I think Novak minus 500 is a pretty solid bet um, to just win this. I think that Steph, as impressive as he's been, I think that if it didn't take Yannick Sinner two sets to figure out that maybe he should hit it to Steph's backhand, uh, I don't think Steph would necessarily be here. Mm. Now, it was impressive how he closed out that fifth set after losing the third and the fourth against Sinner. But, yeah, it's it's disappointing that Novak didn't have to play Sinner or Holger Rune. That he didn't have to play either of them because I think they're probably the second and third best guys at this tournament, at least in terms of upside to beat him. But, uh, alas, uh, I think Novak... I think it's probably going to be a cakewalk for him. Uh, let's go to the women's final, which is certainly the more interesting matchup. Uh, Arena Sabalenka, uh, who has been the player of the tournament to date. She's been untouchable. She, when she is on, she is unplayable. Now she plays someone who is also unplayable when she's on. <laughs> has to give against Elena Rabakina, who opened up plus 125 in this market. Now it's edging towards pick. Sabalenka is still the slight favorite. What do you make of this match, uh, Caitlin? I'm, I'm going to say the same. Sabalenka was my pick to win the tournament, um, so I have to stick with her for the final. I give her the slight edge, the record head-to-head, as we discussed. Uh, that really is past as prologue when it comes to tennis, and she's three-love. That said, every single one of those encounters has been three sets. They've been battles, and Rabakina is coming off of her most successful season to date. Technically, she's, I think, 25 or so in the rankings, but really she should be in the top 10 had Wimbledon awarded points, uh, which they did not for political reasons, uh, you know, which we can you know probably debate on another show. But really, these are two top 10 players, both playing without fear, both peaking, and coming in a tournament that's going to favor their gameplay of taking the initiative. So I love this match. I think it's great. I think it's popcorn. And I think in terms of the edge, yeah, Sabalenka has it because she's also been to a very, very dark place and figured out her way out of it, which anybody who's played any kind of sports, recreational to semi-professional to what we're watching, you know, with these incredible players is getting the yips on, in her case, the serve. If you have the yips on your serve and you walk up to the line and you don't know if you're going to hit it 10 feet out the bottom of the net or hit an ace, which is what watching Sabalenka the last couple of years has felt like, I can only imagine what it's felt like in her head. Uh, you are Your confidence is shaken to its very core. And Sabalenka plays a very confidence-based game. The better she feels, the harder she hits and the bigger she goes in terms of margin. She's the absolute opposite to Novak Djokovic. She does not play safe. She plays for the lines. And 
what was so fascinating to me and underheralded is a year ago she was serving underarm because she literally couldn't get a servant into the court and still managing to to win a few titles here and there. This year, she's completely rebuilt her serve with the help of a biomechanics expert. And so we can get into all sorts of kind of fun stuff about how that is cool and sort of precedented, or at least unheralded, how I'm jealous and would like somebody to look at my forehand, you know. But what it speaks to is this is a person who has felt the fires of the worst misery and pressure at the highest stages and looked it in the face and come up with a solution. And what I've loved about the way she's played this whole tournament and keep in mind, she's won every match she's played this year, is that she's she's had some double faults. She's had some shaky vestiges of the old set arena where maybe it's a little bit too bold. She kind of loses her concentration. And she's found a way to recenter herself and pull herself back from the brink. Rabakina, as good as she is and as peaking as the last couple of years have uh, sort of given her the trajectory to do, hasn't quite, I think, reached that Sabalenka level of not only getting to the top, but maintaining it and figuring out how to evolve. So I like her, but it's going to be close. And that makes me excited. Those are all very fair points. I will only add that Sabalenka not only has won every match she's played this year, she's won every set. Yeah. Uh, she has yet to drop a set. So she has not tasted defeat even on the micro level, um, which is cool. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, the, the, the mentality of having been in the slam final and won, particularly Rubakina having come back in that, you know, that Wimbledon final that we don't speak of on this show. Um, the, that in your, in your, in your, uh, your kind of your mental vault as a tennis player has to mean something. And I think that kind of does level the skill difference that I have, at least between these two players. Um, the two kind of key questions I have for you about, sort of the intangibles around this match come down to sort of the conditions. I felt like the cooler temperatures at night, the breeziness against Lynette really did not do Sabalenka any favors. Uh, Lynette got a lot of her first serves in and maybe that was more of the difference, but uh, it felt like at least in that first set that the match wasn't always on her racket, which is, which, which felt weird. Um, and I guess, you know, what, what would you, would you expect that just because these two uh, women have such similar games that the conditions, whether they're fast or slow, hot or cool, breezy or still, like, is it going to help and hurt each of them similarly? Or do you think anyone would benefit from a specific, uh, you know, type of condition that we're going to expect uh, tonight in uh, Melbourne? That's a totally great question. And I think you're right. That first set with Sabalenka Lynette did feel a little bit, if not precarious, then tight and certainly tension filled in a good way. Um, I think what is interesting about that matchup in particular, and maybe it's the weather, which I think is a, certainly a factor, although, you know, both players are going to be playing in it uh, regardless of, of hot or cold uh, tomorrow. But I also think psychically two things. Number one, Magda Lynette had absolutely nothing to lose. She'd never gone that far in a slam or even close. So playing a free swinging player, versus somebody who is expected to be there and expected to be in the final. I mean, uh, Sabalenka's seed is five, but like me, a lot of people picked her to win the tournament because Iga and Ons, the other two really, you know, slam contenders of recent past, um, just have no real shot on a hard, uh, fast, hard court with the kind of balls that don't benefit their spins. And I think for me... Sabalenka was heavily favored and the whole thing about her psyche, I think really factors in because she has had a few semifinals now where she just completely mentally just got destroyed and destroyed herself. And I think when I watched her win the last point against that in that Lynette match, not only did she take initiative in the point and really close it out, which is formidable because she had let her foot off the gas in prior tournaments after getting up a set 
especially mm-hmm. in that Grand Slam semifinal scenario. But also, she seemed to like relax her shoulders because she had gone past this main crucible, this hurdle. Some could argue that Arena Sabalenka should have two Grand Slams right now. I would. She should have beaten Ayla <laughs> yeah. Fernandez, in which case she would have decimated Emma Raducanu in that US Open final. And she should have frankly been in the final of the us open this past year so for me i think it has more to do with relaxation she's never been in a final rubakina has you could argue rubakina is the favorite i don't think any of us do but for a player telling themselves what they need to do to perform best and in sabalenka's case it's swing free i actually think that it will benefit her playing a better more expected player in rubakina as opposed to a little bit of a wild card in lynette that's a shaky difficult crucible for her to get past and i think she's got to feel incredibly good to have gotten through it and frankly feel tested where is rubakina beat three slam champions on the route to the final but it never felt like her her fortune was in doubt you know very very fair uh one kind of key thing thought you brought up talking about it though and again like i've been immersing myself in the world of tennis because of the australian open so of course i binge watched breakpoint on netflix which was absolutely unbelievable but probably not good from a better's perspective because it was just (laughs) i was just awash with like confirmation bias left and right oh yeah i knew she was mentally oh i knew that that that, (laughs) oh yeah like it was just like one after another like all of this confirmation bias and one of the kind of key things that was like obvious was you know, uh, Maria Zachary, she was a nightmare trying to get through semifinals. She finally does. And she goes against Iga in the Indian Wells final last year. And she was just like, happy to be here. <laughs> like, I finally got over my demons. I finally got to a final. Here I am. Like, do you worry at all that there is an inkling of that going on with Sabalenka where she finally gets to a slam final and she is not maybe not as dialed in on the actual prize here? Or do you think that she's just, uh, com- you know, she's 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 built differently? She, they're built differently. I think okay. it's a great it's a great use of the breakpoint uh, familiarity uh, sort of complex that I am thrilled that people are now bringing some cultural context to the tennis conversation because it's been us sort of talking to each other in a void for the last couple of years. Um, that said, Maria Sakkari kind of famously wilts. I mean, Maria Sakkari is somebody else. Two slams. Maria Sakkari should have two slams. At the very least, the French Open, where she really fell apart against Krajikova, and then a very, very winnable final uh, that Krajikova beat Pavlyuchenkova, and that should have been Maria Sakkari's. There's probably another hardcore title in there, I would say, the U.S. Open. So for me, Maria Sakkari is like sort of famously uh, wilts in all sorts of finals, whereas Sabalenka just kind of couldn't get through a slam scenario because she's got lots and lots and lots of titles. So I think actually she's built... She's Seahawk ball, hit ball. You know what I mean? Like she's just trying to, she's just trying to make this a monster truck rally. Whereas Maria soccer is a little bit too nice. And she's like, well, I don't know if I deserve this. I worked so hard, but my right. brain is not necessarily my asset. You know, I've met both of them. They're both like fun gals, but I think Maria Sabalenka is like there to engage the artillery and you know, get the ground game uh, off, off just as fast as she possibly can and lift that trophy. So I just, okay. I'm really excited though. Cause I think it'll be a good match. Okay. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Team no heads. Sabalenka all the way. Uh, and honestly, like this actually the com- conclusion I come through talking it out here is that Rabakin is going to have to beat her. This is, this is one, this is going to be a matchup and it is going to come down to skill as opposed to, uh, you know, the mental aspect until we get to break point in the third set and Sabalenka <laughs> double faults, but We'll leave that for uh, a Don't discussion. Her, on Monday. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it's written in the stars. I don't know. Hopefully she gets over that failing to, you know, close out match point on serve in the third set and then wins the tiebreak or something. We'll see. Um, but, on the mental aspect, but 
with Sabalenka, I think the way to handicap this is look, she's better. She's better than Rabakina, all things considered. I think she's just yes. playing at a higher level. But, and also on that, I mean, Sabalenka to go down a break early to Bencic to face some really key love 30s against Bencic on her second serve and come through that. To have the first set against Magda Lynette go the way that it did, where she should have wrapped that up a lot earlier. And then at 6 5, she had love 30 on mm-hmm. Lynette's serve uh, and to not win that game and then come into the tiebreak and just absolutely blitz her to go 7 1. Uh, I think that that all bodes well, but at the same time, I can't get the semi-final against Igor Fiantek in the US Open out of my head. So I do think that uh, <laughs> that is the concern and it's why Sabalenka is only a very quick favorite. Uh, let's sign off. Caitlin, can you tell people where to follow you? Sure. I would say my personal account is real incendiary and filled with lots of opinions. So let's go with <laughs> racketmag.com, Racket Magazine on Twitter and Instagram. Join us there. We have amazing people tweeting. Uh, sometimes it's me, but thankfully not all the time. Thanks for having me, guys. What a fun awesome. weekend Thanks, we Caitlin. look forward to. Appreciate it. Sabalenka. Cheers. All right, we are done as well, Drew. Uh, Don't forget to check out NBCSportsEdge.com for more information to help you with your wages. Thanks for those watching on the NBC Sports YouTube channel. And if you're listening to us in podcast form, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. We'll be back next week. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.